Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. We are coming at you with a special episode that we did not have planned for our regular content calendar. We wanted to follow up on an episode that we did last year around this time that is pertinent again this year. And our episode last year was on the first week-long work stoppage by mental health workers at Kaiser Permanente in California. Once again, this year, over this past week, they had another week-long work stoppage. I think that it's important to listen to our first episode about this as far as kind of some of the legalities and the parameters, our opinions on what was trying to be accomplished at that time. Because there's another strike this last week, you can very much guess that not very much progress has been made in this last year as far as what's happening at the negotiation table. We thought that we would reach out to both Kaiser Permanente and NUHW, the union representing the healthcare workers for interviews or a statement. We will cover both of those here today. Katie was able to interview somebody who's very much involved in the Kaiser system. My schedule didn't work out for the three of us to all come together at that time. We're going to play that interview mostly in full, just editing out for a little bit of time here. But uh, we also have a statement from Kaiser Permanente that we'll cover as well. But Katie, over the last year in kind of viewing this from afar, neither one of us are involved in this strike directly. But how have your views on this evolved in the last 12 months? The biggest change, I think, for me and my understanding of it has been getting more information in reading through different ads by Kaiser and articles and, and information from the union. I've recognized that there is a lot of complexity and nuance that I wasn't aware of. And I think that's kind of what I said in our episode last year of Modern Therapist Strike Back. But I think for me, the biggest piece is really understanding the implications this has on the mental health field. When we look at how mental health services are provided in an organization or a medical system as large as Kaiser, it reflects on how mental health services are going to be moving forward. I feel like government entities and other decision makers in society end up taking the lead from folks that are in the the biggest place to be able to make a difference. And so when I was talking with uh, Kenneth Rogers 
a psychologist at Kaiser. And in reading an article in the LA Times uh, that was came out on Monday about the backlogs for therapists, I started to get a real picture of what the uh, the therapists are dealing with and that they're not seeing clients regularly. They can only schedule out six or eight weeks. And to me, it just it's shocking that there are systems in place and, a, and an organization that could potentially have really amazing, high-quality mental health services that it's barely putting a Band-Aid on things. And so for me, understanding the importance and understanding the implications of how a system as big as Kaiser is operating has become more and more evident. I think for me that in looking at this over the last year, that this is so important for all of us across this industry to care about. And again, at the end of the episode, we'll have some commentary after the interview as far as getting a little bit more in depth about this. But whether or not you work at Kaiser, whether you are a Kaiser customer, whether you potentially future are going to work at Kaiser, (laughs) this strike matters because this will have ripple effects throughout our industry. And as we've covered in the past, and as you'll hear Dr. Rogers talk about some of the ways that this impacts some of the professionals who are faced with this decision of striking or not, that this has personal impacts on the people who are involved. But this also has personal impacts on those of us outside of the system too. And it's something where if it's not in your face day to day, it's really easy to just have this be something that's in the background and to you know, come across the occasional article or you know news release about this. Mm-hmm. But this really does matter for the future of our profession and really should be something that we all care about and watch a lot more closely. So we had mentioned that we had reached out to both Kaiser and NUHW. We did receive this statement from Kaiser Permanente. So this is titled Statement Regarding NUHW's Planned Strike December 16th to 20th, 2019 from Arlene Piesnall, Senior Vice President and Interim Chief Human Resources Officer. And the statement says, despite the National Union of Healthcare Workers' decision to strike is important, our members know that our hospitals and medical offices remain open. Our commitment to patients comes first. We are working hard to deliver the high-quality care and service members and patients need. Anyone in need of urgent mental health or other care will receive the services they require, Where necessary, we will call members to reschedule some non-urgent appointments. We apologize for any inconvenience caused by this unnecessary strike. We've been jointly working with an external neutral mediator to help us reach a collective bargaining agreement with the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Mediator recently delivered a proposed compromise to both sides that we are seriously considering. However, the union has rejected it and announced plans to strike instead of working through the mediated process. This is NUHW's sixth notice strike within a single year. We believe that NUHW's repeated call for short strikes is disruptive to patient access, operational care, and service, and is frankly irresponsible. Although Kaiser Permanente will make every effort to minimize patient disruption, we are again forced to devote valuable resources needed elsewhere in our organization to instead address the continuity of care in our operations while these employees strike. A strike does nothing to help our important work to advance care, nor does it help us achieve a mutually beneficial contract. All it does is put our members in the middle of bargaining, which is not fair to them, especially during the holidays when rates of depression can spike 
and our patients are counting on their caregivers to be there. Rather than calling for a strike, we ask that NUHW's leadership continue to engage with the mediator and Kaiser Permanente to resolve these issues. So I was able to chat with Dr. Kenneth Rogers. He's a psychologist who has worked with the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group for the past 16 years. He has worked at the Fremont, Santa Clara, and Campbell Medical Centers in the past and currently works at the Elk Grove Clinic near South Sacramento. He has been a shop steward for NUHW since its inception in 2009 and has been on the NUHW Executive Board since 2015. Dr. Rogers was a member of the 2010 to 2015 contract bargaining team, and he remains a member of the current bargaining committee since July 2018. So let's just jump into the interview. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to represent NUHW in this conversation. Kurt and I really wanted to make sure that we were able to really get perspective from what's happening from the inside, because we had previously done an episode about last year's strike and recognized that we didn't have an inside perspective, just kind of what we were reading from the papers and that kind of stuff. So, so before we get started, tell us who you are and, and what you're putting out into the world. I'm Kenneth Rogers. Thank you very much for having me on, by the way, both you and Kurt. I'm a psychologist with Kaiser Permanente. I've been a psychologist for the past 16 years. Um, I've been working for Kaiser the whole time. Um, I'm also a shop steward with NUHW, National Union of Healthcare Workers. I've been a shop steward for the past 10 years, and I've been on the bargaining committee in one form or another, pretty much the entire time with both this current contract and the last one. The last one was a five-year campaign between 2010 and 2015. You know, this last one, we started in July of 2018, and we've been um, going on that since. What we're, what we're putting out is mental health parity for, uh, for patients who are being seen and treated for mental health conditions that they have parity with um, patients who are being seen for medical conditions, that they receive equivalent treatment and equivalent um, care. And that's a big part of what we're putting out. But we're also putting out that it's important that the workers that provide this care have adequate working conditions, not only to do, to do their jobs, but also to take good enough care of themselves that they can continue to do their jobs. And also, uh, we want parity with the other employees at Kaiser Permanente as well. We have not been treated in a, in a similar manner. I would say that last point is a little bit um, less than the other two, but it's it's part of the whole picture for this latest contract bargaining. Yeah, I was reading the article in the LA Times around the conditions, the the tracking that they're doing, as well as the different retirement and other types of compensation that the mental health providers are getting. And it, it was frankly shocking to me that that's something that's still going on. Let's, let's step back just a second because sure. I have never been in a, in a union. So I want to yeah. make sure I'm clear. What does a shop steward do? And, and what does the bargaining table actually look like? Because I have these pictures in my brain that I'm sure are inaccurate. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I can tell you that nothing could prepare you for the bargaining experience other than doing it. <laughs> and most people would be yeah. very surprised at what it's really like. 
A shop steward is a representative of the union in this work sites. Shop stewards are employees of the organization of, in my mm-hmm. case, Kaiser Permanente. These are employees that work for Kaiser. They do this work on unpaid time. They're not compensated by the union to do the additional work that's needed. We represent members in disputes that go on locally, but we also do sometimes um, more regionally specific work. I was involved in a regional committee for three years, for instance, to try to improve both working conditions and patient care um, that was that seemed to be successful at the time, but here we are. So um, mm-hmm. not I did not I don't I don't know now what that means, but the bargaining bargaining is a lot of waiting around, to be honest. The experience okay. you have at the table. The actual bargaining that goes on, there are large spaces of time between. So we'll make a proposal and then they'll take it back to their people and think think about it. And then they bring a yeah. proposal. And one of the things that's really different about our bargaining is usually in these situations, even with unions, there's a lot of, you know, you have the union staff and then you have the management staff and there's a, a dispassion. There's a, a distance. But okay. when we come to bargaining, our members come to bargaining, our employees come to bargaining. So the other side is often met with a group of people who do the work. So they're going to speak directly yeah. to the things that they need and the things that they see. And, and that's how the bargaining with us, I think, you know, from the management's perspective, frankly, can be challenging that, you know, they're, they're not, they're prepared to talk about the economics and this and what about you know this raise or that raise? But when we come and we start talking to them about, hey, there's not enough people to do this work. We don't have enough time to do this work. By the way, you know the way that you have the ratio set up isn't working. I mean, all these individual issues that, yeah. you know, on the other side, a lot of times it's represented by placeholders for um, for senior executives in the company. I've been bargaining with Kaiser Permanente for ten years. And it's really occurred to me just recently, I've never met any, hardly any of the people that I'm actually bargaining with directly in a way. And what I mean by that is that, oh, interesting. what I mean is that it's not like if, if I were buying a tree from you and I go to you and I say, well, how much, you know, f- for the tree, I'm, I'm dealing directly. You're the one with the tree. Yeah. I, yeah. With Kaiser, these are all people that this isn't their money. This isn't their money. This isn't their, I mean, they've got a job to bargain with me, but this isn't the, there's a, there's a layering of bureaucracy that creates a situation and an emotional distance in the bargaining process where you get a bunch of individuals who in the room, when I tell them my story, they're sympathetic as humans, but it's not their, it's not their concern in a direct way. And so that distance is unfortunately a lot of times what affects problems in bargaining where you know we we make a proposal and the people who are really calling the shots who I've again 10 years of doing this never met them don't have any perspective on it all and we try to communicate the hope is we communicate to the opposing bargaining team Kaiser's bargaining team so that they accurately communicate that to the to their constituents and the and in and, and if anybody's ever played a game of telephone, 
may know that the more people you tell, it's like the story changes. And I, and I, and I wonder how accurate is it that the information we're trying to convey to the, to the, um, the principles, like how do, do they really understand the, the nature and, and, um, gravity of our concerns? And I would say that they have some idea, but their policies and their behavior in terms of trying to resolve this contract have been callous. And it, to me, it either suggests distance or indifference. And I, I don't know which at this point. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I guess to me, I, I always picture the conversations I had when I was working in an agency where I was coming from the employee side saying, we need this or we need that. And I was talking directly to the person, to the decision maker. Yeah. There wasn't this layering of bureaucracy. And so there wasn't and when there was, we could leapfrog it. I could tell my supervisor, and and if it came back, oh, they don't want to hear about this, blah, 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 I could say, well, I'd really like to talk to the decision maker. And in that small environment, and relatively, you know, it's you know, probably 300, 400 employees, you know, like it's that relatively small environment, I could talk to the decision maker, plead my case be the reasonable person that I was and and things could either change or not change, but at least I know I'd been heard. This sounds extremely frustrating yes. to not know if it's, if the message is even getting through. Yeah. And, and let me be clear. We've talked to very high level officials in the organization. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the former, you know, dearly departed um, Bernard Tyson, but also, you know, mm-hmm. his successor, Greg Adams, we've had discussions with him. It's not like we're not talking to people who are empowered to make decisions, but they have a constituency. You're talking about the Permanente Medical Group. You're talking about KFH. Uh, You're talking about a billion-dollar company with $40 billion in reserves. And the sense I get is it's kind of like, well, they have a constituency of physicians and, and executives and blah, blah, blah that it isn't just one person's decision ever. There is this, mm-hmm. there are a yeah. series of voices that are coming back on the other side. And, and we've had this discussion internally about hawks and doves and, you know, some people are with us and some people are, you know, not so much, but in the end, it, it kind of, that collection of information from the other side comes forward in a strategy that, that they yeah. unite behind. And, it isn't, I don't believe it's, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't believe it's one individual's strategy. I don't believe it's one person sitting down and saying, okay, well, I'm going to make all the decisions around this or not. Because the question about whether Kaiser Permanente has the ability to meet our demands is, is, is not really there. It's, they obviously mm, do. Mm. The position they've taken, and I think a lot of people don't understand this about the bargaining is, that they've offered a good enough deal and that's the end of it. If you read the press releases, if you even read the information that's coming out on the strike, you're not getting the full story. And in order to get the full story, you'd have to talk to someone like me because, you know, like for example, the thing I see, oh, we've been bargaining for over a year. No, they bargained for less than a year of real bargaining. Mm. The last substantial offer that we got from Kaiser Permanente was June the 9th, right before our open-ended strike. Right before our open-ended strike, they said, don't do this. Don't go on strike. Take it mm-hmm. back to your members. Yeah. This is a good offer. And this is what we did. We didn't say it was a good offer, but we took it back to the membership. The membership yeah. of the union, our constituents, voted 93% to turn it down. 
93%. I mean, if it's 60-40, that's, that's yeah, you, know, you can that's do it that way. almost unanimous. 93%. And so we, we went back to management. We said, look, 93%. What are we going to do? We got to go, bargain more. The people are not going to accept this deal. And they said, well, they're wrong. <laughs> you, need to, <laughs> you, need to, you need to go back to them again and twist some arms or convince. Or, you know, they didn't say it like that, but you know what I mean? They, yeah. That their position was, hey, you know, that's enough. That's that. This is what we're doing. The only other meeting they had was a meeting saying, well, if you don't accept our offer, we're going to take away retroactive pay from 2018. We're going to punish you. That this was wow. That this was the, is that even legal? Sure, they okay. they well, th- you know, it, with 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 legality, it's always a question of what do you follow up on, what do you pursue. But they changed. Yeah. But but there was never any really discussion. The idea from the from the settlement was we're going to get raises that go back to when our contract ended, which was September two thousand eighteen. So the idea was there was this big retroactive check that was supposed to come in. But they mm-hmm. said, look, you guys voted this down. You've obviously made a mistake. Go back to your members. Tell them, accept this, or you're going to re- lose the retroactive pay from September 2018. And this was September 2019. Yeah. So we didn't accept that. We said, look, yeah. we're not accepting that. Um, and then... You know, we were going to have this strike in November, but with mm-hmm. Bernard Tyson passing, we decided not to do that. It didn't seem like the right thing to do. So here we are. Yeah. But this is a group that did not try to prevent this strike at all. They did not engage with us. Yeah. Did not. The only thing they did, and I'll say this because they've said it, is they engaged a mediator between us that was supposed to help work this out. So the mediator came out, the mediator, not Kaiser Permanente, came out with a, what they call a supposal. It's a not quite a formal proposal, but it's like a, hey, mm-hmm. if you like this and we like this, maybe we can get together and work this out. And the terms of it were so confusing. We didn't, we didn't, we, we couldn't take it seriously. I mean, we did take it seriously it. for what it was, but, you know, we needed a bargaining session with this employer to talk about the details of the contract. They wouldn't meet with us. They didn't contact us. We had a strike. Here we are. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. 
So last year, around this time, you had a strike for a, a week, a planned week. Yes. And it sounds like with the the threat, the threat of an ongoing strike over the summer, that made a difference. Yes. And they actually came to the table. What was the decision around doing a strike again this year for just a single the week? First, the first strike, um, some people said, well, what did we get from the first strike? The first strike made a huge difference. They were very conciliatory. Okay. They started working with us again. We did do active bargaining between January 2019 and June of this year. That was ongoing. Okay. I mean, I'm in a room with top executives over Memorial Day weekend. I mean, we were working on this thing. So we were Got moving it. towards each other for the first six months of the year. We declared the open-ended. We gave notice on it. They came back with their current offer, which was substantially better than their past offer. We, we did at that point, we felt like we have enough. Let's take it to the membership. Let's see what they think about this. This is a mm -hmm. course that could have been avoided at that point. But so with us not accepting their offer, we postponed the strike in June because we did not take their offer. I think there was some thinking and some of our members did want to go open-ended in the summer. Say, look, we didn't accept mm -hmm. their offer. We're back to the same place. But we didn't really, we actually thought it was conceivable that they would want to bargain this thing with such an overwhelming yeah. vote on the contract and, you know, this being in the way that it was. So when we came to the late August sort of meeting where they're telling us about they're going to take away our retroactivity and, you know, and, and then we're just going to go this way, we had to, we had, we were back in a position where it's strike or accept. So it's at that point we decided uh, to take this kind of action. And we debated a variety of different actions, whether it would be week-long strike or a few days or an open-ended. or I mean, we went back and forth on the issue for a while. And there was also uh, the threat of a larger strike on the part of another union within Kaiser. So that was also a thing we weren't sure if we were participating in. or So there was a little bit of confusion around some of that but we really Got were it. set on on actually running the strike which we didn't run in the summer in november so the the, the step i'm going to take next is to kind of talk through how it's been as a clinician because i think it's i imagine being in this situation with my my caseload and the people who i'm serving especially given the parameters that I've I've read about that you know you're seeing clients every four to six weeks at best that there's a lot of things that are are not going well so I can understand the need for a strike but how do you balance your commitment to your current clients with the need to improve kind of this overarching mental health care delivery like how do you how do you get your head around striking when you know you have clients that need to be seen that week, for example? Well, it definitely cuts down on organizing time. I mean, you, it's hard to, I think that's one of the thing, you know, if the one area that's taken the biggest hit has been communication with the members, with the, my fellow employees, I'm sure there's people who work in my clinic who are like, I haven't seen Ken in three months. I don't know what, and it's like, look, mm. if you're going to be organizing a strike or a series of strikes as it, as it's turned out to be. And then also seeing patients, which at Kaiser, we see 75% of the patients. That's the rate we see them at. So 75% of our total time is direct patient care. 
Um, Got it. You know, I, it's like something has to take a hit and that's what often takes a hit. It's like having that time. I mean, in past campaigns, I would have had that time. I would have sat down with everybody and had a 20 minute conversation with them about this is what we're doing. And this is why we're doing it. That time has not existed. It just hasn't. And the only thing I feel like, and, and with me, patient care always comes first. It just does. Got it. I mean, that's my priority. That's where I'm at. Um, the LA Times article talked about how, I believe it talked about how I, I'll see patients on my own time. And I will do that. I do do that. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a thing. I'm not, yeah. like, that's for patient care. I'm not going to collude with an organization that just says, well, you know, you got the time you got. And, you know, if you need to see them in four and six weeks, that's what you got. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not worthwhile to me. That's not acceptable. So if I got to cut a few corners, see people at lunch, see people before I come in or after I come in, well, never after I come in, but you know, if I got to do what I got to do, I'm going to do it. That's it. Yeah. So, um, I've tried the best I can to see the patients that I can with the time that I have and, and get on the phone if I need to, to see if I can, you know, sometimes people cancel, you can squeeze somebody in. But really doing outreach to the membership itself has taken a big hit. And so with the outreach having diminished, do you have any concerns that members aren't on board with this? Oh, for sure. At this point. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the members have been through a lot. That the part of the story here isn't about this strike, it's about the last strike. The last strike was five years long. It just kept going on and on. And the reasons it did mm-hmm. that were for reasons very different than the ones present here. But you got me in the clinic saying, hey, this thing should be settled this summer. And by the way, I, I believe everything I said at that time. And I believe everything. I mean, <laughs> this is a contract that could be settled this afternoon. I mean, mm. it really isn't something that it's like impossible. And we just need to get the greatest minds in the region to figure. I mean, come on. It's, it's really right in front of us. And it's just about, is there a willingness on the part of management to work with us to see if we can come to some kind of arrangement? I was profoundly disappointed that the management group didn't even reach out before the strike. I mean, you don't even try to stop mm. this. It, I, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get my head around that. Um, yeah. But yeah, the members themselves have been through a lot. And yeah, they... <laughs> It's like you come to them, okay, we're going to do this open-ended, then we don't do it. And, you know, they were upset about that. Then you come to them and say there's going to be a strike in November and sure the passing of somebody isn't is of somebody significant is a good reason to postpone it. Yeah, for sure. But they had to arrange for that. And then, you know, and then here mm-hmm. I come week before Christmas with my own special gift. Yeah. to uh get everybody rounded up. <laughs> And, you know, yeah. to, to go on the uh, frozen streets of Sacramento. So um, yeah. it's, it's a hard sell. I, I, I understand it. I, I wish all of this could be different. I just don't know how to do it any other way than what we're doing. Yeah. So, so stepping back again into this notion of what can mental health services look like in these systems like Kaiser. And let me tell you my Pollyanna pie in the sky vision that I have, because I was a Kaiser patient at a certain point and I loved the way that Kaiser has integrated services. You know, I 
the ACE study and, and all of that was something that was eye-opening to me. I liked having an integrated, you know, medical record. I see Kaiser as, as pulling, pulling into it, having the potential to pull into a different type of system where state of the art mental health services are seamlessly integrated with the medical services that there are, you know, super high quality because you have clinicians who can devote their time to it in a, in a way with, with a, a reasonable salary and potentially reasonable, but, and it's all this, like, I see this possibility as so, I mean, like you said, like right in front of you and I see Kaiser as being someone that has the opportunity to pave the way for systems like these. So this is my uh, completely outside, only having been a patient in Kaiser you know, kind of, there's this possibility that this could be amazing because Kaiser does have the resources to do something like this. Now, that being said, I'm not in the trenches. You are, you're, you're, all of your union members are, and you see what's what's there and potentially what's possible. So, so what is this big picture goal for what mental health services looks like? You know, the ideal, you know, because, because, because I like to know where you're heading, not like what's the incremental step you're trying to make sure. now. And that's the and that's the be- and that's a great question because that's the right question because this contract is just the means to an end. So what is the end? Of course, yeah. transformation of the entire model of care. And I know I'm not alone in this. I know that there are people on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, who agree with me. And when yeah. I think of transformation of the model of care, I think of if, of it in a few different ways. The first is we need to be more efficient with our use of time. We are, as clinicians, we are saddled with too many additional responsibilities. This was one of the education pieces I've had to provide to um, the executives. It's like, you think my job is just see patient, write notes, see patient, write note. I've got 37 other duties that local management has decided are things that are essential to my job. Like they want me to do a bunch of other stuff. And that's fine, but if you have me doing a bunch of other stuff, you know, cancer screening, what happened to this patient? Why did this one reschedule? I don't have time to see patients. You know, there's, a, there's yeah. only so much time, and that time should be – I mean, the doctors aren't treated this way. I don't call my – I call my I call my primary care physician. I, I don't reach her on the phone personally. She's got a medical mm-hmm. secretary. They set up the appointment. They talk about what my concerns are. There's a, there is support that will, yeah. so that she is spending, she is maximizing her time to seeing patients, yeah. writing notes, you know, ordering labs, whatever she needs to do. But her job is specific to being a physician. My job should be specific to being a psychologist and it shouldn't yeah. be layered with all these other duties. So you get more efficient with the way that we're using our time. That's one thing. You've got to have an investment, an additional investment in buildings, people. Kaiser did commit to some of that over the summer. And that's the one part of mm-hmm. their proposal that they've moved into actualizing. They have yeah. also have plans to improve recruiting, to get more you know, college tuition reimbursements. Um, but none of that takes place until the contract is settled. Everything that would so they've not started that. In, they've not started that in no. good faith. That's something where they, this is an idea to invest in the future. They're, that's a good idea, but doesn't go into place until the contract. Exactly, signed. their proposal does okay. work to bring more clinicians into the system. Absolutely, 
but it will not be actualized until this contract is settled. That's why this contract is a stumbling block towards the greater goal of changing the model of care. We want to make these jobs, you know, what I want is what these jobs were when I, you know, when I first got in, it's like, you wanted this job. Like you were fighting for this job. This was a good job. And you, you make this a good job by having those kinds of incentives, but you also make this good job. These, these, this a good job by having the support for the clinicians. You make it a good job by not constantly fighting with the union over every little thing, which is what they seem to be doing. I mean, they, they really came coming into this bargaining and they've really had the opinion that a lot of us just don't do a lot. And I, I, I don't know how they get that. I just don't, I don't know how they get there. <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know what else to do to convince these people that I work hard. Finally, finally, it's like they, they sort of conceded, okay, Ken works hard, but we know lots of other clinicians <laughs> who don't. And it's like, <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know what to say to that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to, yeah. you know, it's like, this should be a thing that we're working together on. We need to yeah. work together. You want to talk about the future. That's the future. The future isn't the union having dominance in the situation or management. The future is us working together to improve the model of care. And we can't do this if this mm-hmm. is how we're spending our time. You know, bargaining a contract that should have been concluded six months, a year ago. This is part of the problem. And, you know, and, and this is where, you know, I'll, I'll dip into the financials a little bit. But look, you give everybody else in Kaiser a 3% raise, give your therapist one. Stop. Yeah. trying to nickel and dime everybody and stop trying to make us accountable for these shortfalls in resources, which they have committed. And that's going on. That's part of it. It's always challenging when you're dealing with folks who see everything in terms of dollars and cents. And to them, it is everything yeah. is an expense and everything is a cost. So when they add it all up and they say, well, you're getting paid this much and everybody else is getting paid this much. So why should we give you, it's like, look, this is what you're doing with everybody else in your organization. You've got to, you've got to come, you've got to come to it. You know, don't stop trying to constantly cheat your employees. And especially not one specific segment of employees is what you're saying. Well, if somebody would have told me you're going to be in a job, which people, which your organization considers to be at a shortage, but they're going to, even though your your position is considered a shortage, a nationwide shortage, they're also going to try to nickel and dime you, and undercut you, and and treat you like less. I I I could I, I those two things just don't make any sense to me. I mean I can't yeah. I can't bridge those gaps. It's like yeah, if you had a cardiologist who was specialized in something, that's the last one you treat badly. That's the one you yes. take out to lunch and say, oh my god, we're so <laughs> glad you're here. You don't, you don't, you don't treat the people like we're being treated and yeah. their position has been that their position has been that we're overpaid and we don't need any more, but I don't really see that. So t- what you're, de- what you're describing is that Kaiser is saying, basically you're, you're paid well enough. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the things that I've seen coming through, because I live down in the LA area, you know, through the Los Angeles Times, that there's 
uh, you're some of the best paid mental health professionals in California. And, and there's some truth in that. And so it sounds to me like there are these systemic issues unrelated to Kaiser that are walking into the bargaining room around clinicians as a whole being underpaid versus understanding that within the Kaiser system, it sounds like what you're describing and what I've read in other places is that regardless of where you fit among your peers across organizations, you're being treated differently within the organization. Yes. And that's that's not acceptable. And I think to me that goes to parity, that goes to mental health access. To me, it seems like in the past, potentially the fact that Kaiser therapists were paid or psychologists were paid well got them by. And now it's like, no, that's not good enough. There actually has to be parity across all the different types of professionals in the organization in how you treat us based on, you know, with the the annual raises, with the benefits, that kind of stuff. So to me, that that makes a lot of sense. The other piece, which I think is is the part that feels this isn't the right word, but I'll use it as a placeholder, kind of more clinical or altruistic or or the part that really, I think, t- you know, kind of pulls on the heartstrings is this idea of remaking mental health services to make them more f- effective. And I know that you've said, you know, the system of care, that kind of stuff, that there's there's this goal to work together. Mm-hmm. And and I guess the question is, what does that is are there notions on what this this system of care would look like and what is the the goal for management and clinicians or union or whoever like the the collaboration there the goal the goal from our perspective is to make and I'm going to sound a little bit like management with this next comment but to make maximum use of our time that we have you know okay. to you know to we so to utilize it's creating the efficiency absolutely efficiency is okay. a big thing i mean i know uh, some of my colleagues don't like to talk about productivity and blah, 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 but we work for somebody. Yeah. We work for somebody. Yes. I mean, you, there's an acknowledgement there. You're not, ju- we're not just, they, they, you know, you can't just have carte blanche either. Like, well, you yeah. know, there you are in the office. Enjoy. There's no restrictions or limitations <laughs> anywhere. I mean, y- you do have to have some level of structure and an expectation yes. of productivity, but really what, what we're working towards is clinicians have enough time to do the job that they were trained to and hired to do. And Mm -hmm. if I need to see a patient next week, I can comfortably do that. And if I need to see a patient in two weeks, I can comfortably do that. And yes, if I don't need to see a patient for four or six weeks, then that's fine. But that's my decision as a clinical. Mm -hmm. That is a clinical decision, not a business decision. That's the goal that we're looking towards. And I mean, this is what the level of care that we believe the patients deserve. And I'm not even talking about this in terms of, well, are you talking about group therapy or individual therapy? I'm just talking about the care that patients need when they come in the front door and that's what they need. What I would like most of all is if our union or any other had decided to have this action, that the patients themselves would rise up as one and say, you're wrong. I see my clinician whenever I want. This is not a, this isn't happening. Mm. That's, Mm -hmm. that's what I want. That's what I want. Yeah. I want, and, and what I'm greeted with time and time again, having struck a number of times, I have this experience every time is, no, you're right. You're right. I'm not yeah. getting enough care. I'm not getting enough access. I've got my, I've got my therapist telling me, I'm sorry. I can't, I'm sorry. I can't see you in four or six weeks. 
or eight weeks, whatever it is. Yeah. And when the therapists are saying stuff like that, that's not the right direction. With this autonomy or comfort or, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but I think you would kind of the, the ability to actually set a treatment plan and follow it. That seems like a bare minimum. I get that there are all the, the parameters and I've worked in, in systems and man, managed in systems where we had to create efficiencies in order to maximize billable time, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yes. You know? And so I, I appreciate that. To me, it seems like this isn't a big ask. Like, you know, I have these visions of incorporating, you know, treatment teams and, you know, multidisciplinary. Like I have all of these other ideas around like the system of care that provides that's just that there's just a clinical bent. And you're not talking even about that. You're just saying, let me do a minimum standard of care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, that's what the whole thing with the economic parity piece is that all of our asks, none of our asks were like, okay, we're asking for something that no one else gets in the system. None of them were those yeah. were those asks. They were all, you know, if everybody else is off Martin Luther King Day, you know, we should get that day too, sort of stuff. And yeah. I, you know, and it, and this is the kind of things that we squabble over and we, and the amounts, I mean, if you're talking about the pure economics of it, the amounts that we're separated now by are, are not significant. It's really a management group, which, and I, and I, and I think this is the point I was going to make before, but the management group believes that this strike and everything that's going on is, it's kind of like a bunch of ringleaders. It's not the people, it's not mm-hmm. the clinicians. It's just, you know, it's me and my friends, and we're out there causing trouble. And it's like, we had, a, we had ah. a rally. We went down Oakland. We were in Oakland marching, hundreds of us. I don't have that many yeah. friends. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, this is, these are, these are the people you've employed. They've chosen to yeah. take this week off to send a message to you. And yeah. it's not like we haven't been trying to communicate that message for months. It's frustrating. I think to me, what I'm hearing is that there is a bureaucratic system in place with these layers that makes it hard to, and there's so many kind of quote unquote constituent groups. There's the, the Kaiser patients, there's the therapist, there's the union, there's management, there, you know, all these other groups that I don't understand over on that side, stakeholders on the other side. And so coming to an agreement is a huge task. And it sounds like it's getting close, but it's not close enough to to say, okay, let's let's do this here, and then keep and keep moving forward. It's like no, th- we need to we need to. What I'm hearing is we need to take a stand because this is far enough away that it's not going to do what needs to be done. You know, I I was thinking about this before the interview that this is really about. I mean, they they they, t- they talk a lot about money, but this is really about relationships. How are we getting along? Can we come to terms? And do we trust each other enough to get in a room and make an agreement that we can both live with and move on from this? And with uh, management not even making the attempt, and this is why I was so disappointed, they didn't even reach out. It's like that you're not going to even, I mean, it's just, there are a lot of stakeholders who who make decisions related to this. But the fact of the matter is, is that they do have a a united strategy. And the strategy, from what I can tell, seems to be we've offered enough and we're not giving more. 
And that's that. Mm. You want to strike, you want to do this, you want to do that, enjoy. And what we've been mm. telling them, what we've, um, you know, and it's not, it's not just us. We have political support all over in Sacramento. Lieutenant Governor spoke on Monday for us. Governor's office is involved. We've got Congress people, political people of all stripes, you know, really communicating the same message. It's like, get together, settle this thing, put this fire out. And I don't know who's responsible for the direction of the organization in terms of this strategy, but the only thing that I can sense from it is that there's a, there is a desire to continue to fan the flames on their part. And I don't know why that is because we need to put this fire out so that we can get yeah. to changing the model of care and making the changes that are going to benefit the patients the most. So I think I've got a pretty good sense of kind of what's, what's been, you know, kind of what it means to bargain, what you guys are working towards and, and that process. The, the name of the podcast is The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. And so stepping into your union members, the therapists who are potentially out in the cold with picket signs right now. Mm -hmm. They are. Who had to, had to have conversations with their clients in November and then again last week. They did. How do you, and, and maybe you can only speak personally or maybe there's been, you know, kind of guidance that you've given your, your members, but how do you take care of yourself during a strike? How do you talk to clients about the strike? Like how do you cope with this ongoing thing as a therapist? Because I think that to me seems like it would be heartbreaking and exhausting. It's, it is both heartbreaking and exhausting. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it depends how involved you are. Um, mm -hmm. You can't be more involved than me. So I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've sort of taken, you know, this hasn't been a great year in um, therapist uh, self-care. Let me just say that. I've had very few vacations. I tried to take mm -hmm. one this week, but that's not happening. Um, yeah. I just, you know, it's like, it's like you're always on call for something. You're always, we, we do weekend conference calls all the time. Yeah. There's constant organizing. It just, you know, you just do the best you can. I try to get a good night's sleep. I try to set some limits, you know, it, it helps with the electronic communications. You know, if I text people more than being on the phone. But there's a price yeah. you pay because you, you're not as present for those for for them, and 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 I would say with patients that probably does have an impact too. Maybe I'm not always as present for them as I should be. And I don't know. You know, my patients are too nice to tell me, "Wow, Ken, <laughs> you look like you're falling asleep," or you're, you know, mm -hmm. I have to actually fall asleep before they tell me I'm falling asleep. But you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the story of therapist burnout, huh? <laughs> But I mean, I'm sure, you know, they notice, you know, wow, you look, you know, every once in a while, you, you really look really tired. And I don't know what to say to that. I feel bad for him. I mean, it's not their fault mm -hmm. that, yeah. you know, I'm exhausted in 10 different ways. But I think this is a thing that's worth doing. And I try to rally around that. You know, in order to be in the role that I'm in, you have to believe in it. You have to believe yeah. completely that this is a change that needs to take place and you've got to see it through. And so that's what I've sort of um, convinced myself of this year. And, 
in fairness to me, I thought it would be over by summer. I didn't think yeah. it would still be here now. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. With the, the other therapists who are less, potentially less involved than you, which I guess everyone's less involved than you, but what, you know, if they're listening to the podcast, what do you recommend for them as far as how they take care of themselves during this time? Cause you've been, you've been at this for a long time. I, you know, so that, how do you, how do you recommend that they take care of themselves? Thank you for asking that question. The therapists that I work with know that I don't take a traditional union position with this, with striking or any of the other activism we do. And by traditional union, what I mean is I don't go in there with the arm twisting and the, uh, you know, Got the it. guilt trips and the where, where are you and why didn't I see you on the line sort of talk. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't believe in it, especially with as hard as they've worked and what they've had to go through. Whenever I talk to them, whenever I have the time to talk to them, I say, do what makes sense for you and your family. Don't worry about me. I know you believe in this. I know you support this. Every single person who went to work this week, I know believes in this and supports this on some level. I don't think that they're disloyal or um, bad people because they weren't on the line every minute of the, of the day supporting. I know they do what they can and they've got to make decisions that make sense for them, for themselves and their family. I had one member who lost a family member recently. I just, I sent her a text back saying, just take care of yourself. Like, please yeah. don't, you know, I'm not the one. Like, don't worry about the, we'll, we'll, we'll handle the rest of this, but you know, you got to take care of yourself and, and people are knowledgeable about what their um, financial situation is and what their limits are. And, but I've, I've also had some encouraging experiences too. I had a, a, a younger clinician who had just got hired last week. She was fresh to it, you know, and she's broke cause she's just newly hired. <laughs> she comes to me and she says, look, I, I can't, you know, <laughs> can't be out the whole week. But what, what can I do for you? I really believe in this. And I say, come the first couple of days, just come out, come, come, yeah. come with, you know, come on on Monday and then, you know, come with us to Oakland on Tuesday. She did those things. She was there. She was present. She saw it. She believed and yeah. she gave what she could. And I believe that the clinicians are giving what they can. And I don't, I don't believe, um, and none of us thought it would be this much. None of us thought yeah. the level of commitment would require so much. And I would have to say myself included, I have to say I am more disappointed with this campaign than the last. And, and I'm talking about a five-year campaign that was just brutal, but at yeah. least that campaign I understood. I understood what was on the line. I understood management's motivations. This just seems so wasteful, so incredibly mm. wasteful. So is there anything else that we should make sure that we include in this conversation? No, I, I think I've, I've touched really on everything. I, one thing I would emphasize is, you know, when you're talking about a billion-dollar company like Kaiser, they have the money to do a lot of things. Sure, there are significant challenges to running a large healthcare system that they have, that we all share in who work for Kaiser. But $40 billion in reserve, they can make some things happen. They can do some things. And, yeah. um, and we're all really looking forward to this being behind us and getting to a position where we are able to, as, as you pointed out, 
you know, where's the goal? What are we trying to accomplish? And what do we want to see for this metal, this, this healthcare system? And I think I've laid that out as best I could. Thank you. So where can people learn more about NUHW, what's happening in the strike, Kaiser Permanente? Like what are some, where are places that people who are interested in supporting or learning more can go? NUHW has a Facebook page. In terms of websites, Kaiser Don't Deny. It's our campaign about no more Kaiser suicides. That's always a good place to go to. Um, I mean, all the usual social media places. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, we can, we've seen them and and actually NUHW retweeted or or reposted our, our episode last year. So we, we definitely have connected with them online. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. We, we've done a lot of community outreach where patients have contacted us. They've shared their stories. We put to that, put together that in a book at one point. Um, And we're always really open to hearing from the community about how they feel about all this as well. Like I said, my, my goal, my dream is, you know, we want something unreasonable, like a living wage in there. And, you know, and they're like, <laughs> Hey, it's great at Kaiser. What are you doing? Get yeah. back. But yeah. that isn't the response. So f- if community members want to talk to someone at any NUHW or how do they contact you? NUHW.org. You can leave comments. We take those seriously. We, we have communications people who look at those and every once in a while something gets filtered through and I'm, and I'll get a copy of it in my inbox and I'll take a look at it. And, you know, we try to respond as best we can. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. We, uh, we definitely understand that there are a lot of different ways that clinicians can advocate to improve our profession. And I, I feel like I've really learned a lot today about what it means to be in your position as a you know, in a union, in a role of leadership and how you're able to advocate for making our profession better. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So there's a lot to unpack from both sides. Neither one of us are involved in the negotiations. Dr. Rogers Mm -hmm. obviously very much is. And, you know, in any sort of negotiation like this, we come to expect that both sides are going to be advocating for what's in their own best benefit. And, you know, there is a couple of things that, no pun intended, strike me about this (laughs) interview that you had. And, you know, I'm... I'm really kind of, you know, I'm one of those people, I care about the clients that I work with. I I get the desire to provide the services that I entered into this field to do. I'm also on the outside cheering for these workers to get the steps that they want. And, you know, I'm not the one making decisions, but the decision to continue to have short strikes just seems kind of, I don't know, I I want more. And mm. hearing him, you know, talk about, you know, the, these decisions to have these short strikes, but just the progress that was made when it was kind of, hey, we could have an ongoing strike and Kaiser's like, okay, now we're going to get serious. That, yeah. you know, really is something that I think, yeah, it disrupts the field and it disrupts, you know, patient access to being able to have regular appointments. But as we said in last year's episode, if you're not having regular appointments anyway, there's not much of a difference between going eight weeks between sessions and 12 weeks between sessions. 
Yeah. I still don't love the need for strikes or, or the call for strikes. I get why they happen and I get why they are effective. So I, I heard that and that was definitely something I took away from the conversation with Ken. I think, and, and this, this continues to go back to this Pollyanna idea that I have, but I, I look at what both are asking for and what would be in the best interest of both parties. And I know Kaiser's been sued and they were having problems with their mental health services. I know that clinicians, and, and one of the things that Ken was talking about was this idea that there's clerical tasks that he's having to take care of and it, it means that he's not able to see patients as often. And I'm like, all of this stuff speaks to increasing the ability to be productive. So the billing goes up, more patients are seen, having more clinicians that meet a need. I mean, there's this huge market for clients and they're not meeting the need. And I, my assumption is that you add more clinicians, there's a profit margin. So, you know, from the from the side of Kaiser Permanente, it seems silly that they're not doing this well, you know, and from the clinician side, it makes sense that they're frustrated that they have to do weird screenings or scheduling or clerical stuff that just there's no time for. And so to me, it feels like these big conversations and, and I, I think I've talked to you about this as kind of almost like couples counseling where there, there's, a, you know, a, a expectation of what the other party wants. There's an expectation of, of what they're going to hear. And I think that there's not listening that's happening or there's, there's less listening than I'd like happening. And I feel like the, the answer is just right there. So to me, it was just, it's been very interesting to kind of review this and talk with Ken and, and be able to, to look at some of the things that Kaiser's putting out. I mean, it would be great to talk to somebody from Kaiser as well, just to kind of get better of a sense. But it feels like the answer is just right there. And whether it's bureaucracy or pride or, you know, whatever it is, is getting in the way of solving it, you know? Um, and, you know, this is where it's so extremely different than when we as individuals negotiate a raise. You know, sure. as, as Ken's talking about that, the people that they're negotiating with are then having to take the information back to higher ups and higher ups and that they're the people who are negotiating on NUHW's behalf are the ones who are in the thick of it. And they're structurally removed from the people making the decisions by however many mediators and negotiators that Kaiser's putting at the table, which makes it a lot more difficult when you're the, the little man trying to instill and create change. And yeah. this is where I'm excited when you know, a, a union rejects an offer by 93% that, yeah. you know, this is those voices coming together that are really acting up to change the system for the benefit. I, I mean, it's not like they're just sitting there and asking for, Hey, we need a boatload of more money to do what mm -hmm. we're doing. They're saying we want some structural improvements to make it to where this is manageable for us to be able to provide the high quality of services that you're hoping that we can sell. And that's, you know, not something that's very easily negotiated. There is cost with paying people for providing high quality care. If, you know, you're not seeing as many clients, that's less, you know, dollars that can be brought in on services. I get that, but employee turnover 
is costly and it comes at either the expense of employees or it comes at the expense of the quality of services that can be provided. Well, and I don't even think that they're talking about something that would cost more because we're not talking, we're not talking about them seeing fewer clients Mm -hmm. or, or having fewer sessions. We're talking about them seeing fewer new clients. And if you have people on a wait list and you're also farming your own clients out to you know, providers in the community, there is a lot of lost revenue that's happening at Kaiser because they aren't able to meet the need. And so they've got a huge, there are a whole bunch of people that are saying, take my money. Mm-hmm. And Kaiser's saying, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this is actually something where they do want the same thing. I think Kaiser doesn't, the the infrastructure and the hiring and that kind of stuff is not happening, happening quickly enough. And so they're, they're, you know, kind of cobbling together things. And it seems like to me that the time that's spent at the bargaining table, maybe at, you know, on strikes and having to, you know, reallocate resources. Like to me, it seems like it's just, like if everything could stop and they could start again and people could see clients weekly and people could have a, a you know a caseload and a, and a productivity standard that's fairly similar and the the systems could be efficient i think it works for everybody so to me the, i think the biggest shock when i was talking with ken was that they're not asking for some amazing solution they're saying let's do the basic standard of care and not barely meet the needs of our community when our community wants this stuff. Like it's just, is the weirdest thing. <laughs> so to me, it's not about, Oh, Kaiser's going to have to pay more money and they're going to get less in return. It's not that at all. It's saying Kaiser is going to maximize their ability to make a profit if they can fix this. Another thing that stands out to me about the interview is the strategy that Ken describes as Kaiser comparing their wages given to mental health workers to mental health workers who don't work for Kaiser. Yeah. And this is where this gets really important to the rest of us because yes, <laughs> yes it does. <laughs> I, I have, I have heard from agency directors in both community mental health in the nonprofit sector, in even the for-profit sector, as far as Kaiser is, in fact, as far as I can tell in the Southern California area, amongst the highest paid employees when it comes to mental health workers. Yes. When you're working for somebody else. This goes against some traditional economic theory, though. And this kind of started in the 1980s, or it did start in the 1980s by Nobel-winning economist Richard Thaler, who came up with the idea of what he calls uh, inter-industry wage differentials. And through his work and through the subsequent decades of work after this, he and other economists have explored that it's not a apples to apples comparison when looking at positions from within one organization to those in another. And in this case, we're talking about Kaiser workers versus people in community mental health or other agencies, that it's more reflective of people should be paid comparably within the employer that they're in. 
In other words, we would expect people who work for Amazon, top to bottom as a very large organization, would be paid higher wages in general because it's a larger organization. Yeah, We wouldn't expect that secretaries at Amazon are going to be paid the same as secretaries in a very small private practice agency. That just yeah. because it's a bigger organization with bigger money, traditionally, and this is in Thaler's research too, that it's you know particularly a more likely to be a union industry, which Kaiser is. But they're using the reverse strategy because these interdisciplinary or these inter-industry studies say that when this differential occurs within an organization, within Kaiser, if the medical doctors are getting paid proportionately better than the mental health workers, even if the mental health workers are getting paid proportionally better than those outside of Kaiser, mm-hmm. that that is going to create a stagnation of the workers in those positions, meaning that they're treated less fairly, they're treated in ways that don't value them as employees, creating higher turnover, which creates higher problems when it comes to providing good services. In other words, Kaiser seems to be looking at how they're evaluating employee compensation for mental health workers backwards. And this is where... Kaiser being the high watermark right now as far as employee pay, if they're reverting back to the mean income of our entire profession, that then suppresses wages across the rest of our jobs. And we need to be cheering them. We need to be bringing them support out on the picket lines, going out there, cheering them on, give them water bottles, give them cookies, help them (laughs) be the ones who help increase the wages across the profession because we benefit when unions benefit. We benefit, you know, whether we're in a union or not, this is something that can then be held up to increase the demand for higher wages in community mental health and these other agencies because there's always the high watermark that is done by someone else. I think this has already happened. I mean, I've talked to um, administrators in community mental health uh, locally, not recently, but within the last several years. And they've talked about raising wages for therapists because they kept losing licensed clinicians to Kaiser. So to me, it does make sense that we want to make sure that Kaiser is, is showing best practices. I think the other aspect of it is if they're treating their mental health providers differently from other medical providers, it really speaks to parity and respect of of our profession. And so to me, even though it's like, well, maybe they don't need more money, maybe they don't need more benefits, you know, whatever it is, you know, the personal things that I may have, or or I'm kind of speaking in the kind of anti-union stance that I don't really necessarily hold, but just like, regardless of how I feel about how they're compensated, it's also about what's what it means for the profession. If if mental health providers are treated differently and shown different levels of respect, compensation, benefits, those types of things than other professionals, it continues to make it harder for us to reach parity across the board. It continues to to support mental health stigma. And to me, I think even just the philosophy about it versus, you know, whether or not I'm going to get paid more if I go working at an agency again is, is more, a more compelling argument for me. 
So I think both of those things together are extremely compelling. So call to action. Go bring Kaiser workers cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I would I would I would shift that call to action to stay informed and and really understand what's happening because I think there are a lot of places that mental health providers, modern therapists can ad advocate. We can advocate as union members if that's a, an opportunity that we have. We can advocate in legislation, we can advocate in a lot of places. But in talking with Ken, I really understood the difference of my perception of union work versus what it actually looks like. And I think to me, this is just another opportunity to stay informed, to make a difference, and to leave the profession better than we than we found it. Well said. <laughs> so we thank you for finding this important and would love to have you join our ongoing discussions in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And you can check out our show notes on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.